Hello and welcome to the Talking Indonesia podcast. I'm your host, Dirk Tomza from La Trobe University, and I'm delighted to be joining the team of hosts at the Talking Indonesia podcast this year. Today, we're talking about the extractive industry sector in Indonesia, and more specifically, about the role of civil society organizations in promoting greater transparency in an industry that is well known for its rent-seeking, opaque licensing rules and rampant corruption. The sector has also been in the news in recent years because of Indonesia's growing resource nationalism, which is reflected, among other things, in the central government's ban on exports of raw and partially processed minerals, and as this program goes to air, the government is engaged in a tense standoff with mining giant Freeport, which is currently resisting attempts by the Indonesian government to alter the conditions of its existing contract of work. But while the ongoing resource nationalism is grabbing most of the headlines, there is also a less prominent yet noteworthy countertrend, whereby a number of civil society organizations are trying to defy nationalist tendencies and instead spread global norms and values, such as transparency and accountability, to the extractive industry sector in Indonesia. Joining me today to discuss these efforts to embed global norms and values in a seemingly inhospitable local context is Dr. Poppy Sulistiani Winanti from Yogyakarta's Gajamada University. Poppy is currently in Melbourne as a visiting scholar of the University of Melbourne's Indonesia Initiative to present her research on the influence of global norms on Indonesian resource governance. Poppy, welcome to the program. Thank you, Dirk, for having me here. Let me start by asking you, the politics of resource management in Indonesia has been increasingly nationalistic since the end of the commodity boom. What accounts for this resource nationalism and how has it affected extractive industries in Indonesia? There has been a growing concern regarding the rise of resource nationalism in Indonesia. There are some kind of the protectionist policies, like including the protection for the oil, gas, mining and agricultural products. The Indonesian government, in my opinion, is trying to kind of improve the local gains from this kind of resource industries. I also noticed that the Indonesian government, especially under Jokowi administration, also reviewed all the bilateral trade and investment agreements. Those are reviewed and also the government also introduced the new regulations that before the government is signing any kind of agreement should be also approved by the legisla legislation. In my opinion, one of the main reasons behind this kind of resource nationalism is also because of the domestic political change in Indonesia. After the end of Suharto regime, the, the new presidents uh, have been trying to prove to the people that they're more accountable, that they're more transparent, then obviously they want to prove that they can bring more prosperity to the people especially because uh, we know that despite the fact that Indonesia has a kind of a rich of natural resources but it seems that from the people regard that the Indonesian government was still unable to bring more prosperity to the people so that's why while on the other hand the constitution mandates that all these kind of the natural resources should be under the controls of the government owned by the government controlled by the government and also uh, shall be used for the greatest benefit of the people so against this background it was started under the Yudhoyono's administration in 2009 the government introduced new regulations on mining and coals industries especially in order to assert what we call as the greater control over the country's mineral resources uh, in my opinion there are some objectives that try to be achieved by the governments the first thing obviously is to increase the government revenue 
The second is to provide more employment opportunities for the Indonesian people and also to bring more contribution in regard to the economic growth for both national and subnational levels. In addition to that, I think the government is also trying to provide what they perceive as a better uh, investment environment. And also, uh, I think this is the most important thing is try to prove to the people that the government now is having more control over the government in extractive industry. How does this affect the industries? Obviously, it has the great impact and there has been the dispute between Indonesian government and also some of the big mining companies because as you may notice that these kind of new regulations have been introduced while those companies got the contract under the Suharto regime which obviously didn't require them to do all those things. So we have to now, I think we see how then the Indonesian government is trying to renegotiate all the contracts with the foreign mining companies. And we're still uh, in the process to see how, how it goes. And obviously it's not going to be an easy process. Can you perhaps name a few concrete um, policies? What either the Yudhoyono government or the Jokowi government has introduced in order to bring about what they view as greater benefits to the Indonesian people from the extractive resources. The resource nationalism can be seen through several kind of policies. The first one is the policies that targeting the ownership of the resource industry and then the policies that constraining the operation of the resource and also the third one is the policies that you know designed to capture more revenue from this kind of industries and in my opinion the scope of the indonesia's resource nationalism covers all those policies for example the indonesian government requires the local contents obligation it means that the requirement for the foreign companies to also provide more employment for the Indonesian people and also to utilize more of domestic goods and services for the, the, the business. And also Indonesian government currently requires the mining companies to establish the domestic smelter to kind of process it domestically because they want to have like the prolong the chain production in order to gain more value added from the process, especially from downstreaming industries. But also the government is preventing the companies to export the raw materials because they require them to do the process domestically in order to gain the value added from that industry. And in order to get the ownership of the resource, the government is also now requires the divestment of the mining industries up to like 51% after like 10 years of their being operated in Indonesia. Can you say something about how the industry sector has responded to these government policies? We heard about Freeport being anything but amused and are openly resisting some of the government's efforts of changing um, existing contractual obligations. But Freeport may be a special case. The, the response from the industry varies depending on which aspects. Probably the most controversial one is regarding the smelter and also regarding the, the change of the company from if they can't build the smelter, then the company has to change the legal status under the contract of work to become only for like license for specific industry. So those obviously has a main kind of 
uh, impact for the for the companies because under the contract they have like the protection for long-term investment while under the certain specific license they may only have a very limited protection for their investment in Indonesia. So that is the main concerns from the, the foreign mining companies in Indonesia regarding the change in the contracts. The legal status in Indonesia, that is the most kind of uh, controversial issues. The second aspect regarding the divestment, the divestment requirement is not new because it was already under the contract, especially we're talking about the report in this case, that the contract that was signed in 1991 was already including the requirement for the Freeport to divest their equity up to 51% even though it has to be done gradually. Under the contract, it has to be done within, it should be fulfilled by 2011, but now it's already 2017. So in that regard, there's still, you know, some of the aspects under the contract that hasn't, hasn't been fulfilled by the Freeport. However, in regard to the local content, I think it's not that controversial because the companies, the foreign companies until now, they've been kind of complying with that kind of regulations to some extent. And again, if you're talking more about Freeport, I think they hire more like the Indonesian people as compared to the foreign kind of uh, workers in, their, in that uh, uh, company. Do you think Freeport is unique because of its sheer size and um, significant role in the Indonesian economy. Freeport is, of course, the largest taxpayer um, in Indonesia, and it has quite some political clout as well in trying to defy the government. So is Freeport a unique case at the moment, or do you think um, it's reflective of broader resistance from mining companies on the one hand, but also the fact that the Indonesian government is trying to stand by its position, that it's sort of an indication of where the trend is going into the future, namely that the government will further try to impose its authority over the sector. Well, to be honest, I'm not really so sure if Freeport is a unique case, but what I'm arguing is obviously for Freeport is the most noticeable case. When the Freeport and the Indonesian government started to negotiate the current case, it was started 2014-2015. So it has been like two years. So probably the, the other companies took almost like a decade to finally, for example, they uh, able to meet the requirements imposed by the, the Indonesian government. So when we look at the other companies' experience, this may include the Kaltim Prima Coal Company in, in East Kalimantan and also Newmont case in Nusa Tenggara Barat. Those companies, even though eventually they complied with you know, the government's obligations, but the process took almost you know, a decade for them to finally fulfill their obligations. So difficult to say whether Freeport is unique because the other companies are also having similar problems. But then if I'm not mistaken, uh, again, the uniqueness of Freeport is because of the coverage of the media is so huge. Anything related to Freeport is always been like on the media as compared to any other cases. I guess the Freeport case that it happens now is not surprising in a sense that it happens at the time when this nationalist sentiment is really strong in Indonesian political discourse and it's got huge public support, so the government can rely on that as well. And I think there are also probably many business actors with good relations to the political sector, some 
directly playing politics who benefit from this, which is why some observers see this whole resource nationalism as an attempt by local elites to have a greater share of the pie, basically, in the extractive industry sector. So that would fit into this rent-seeking narrative. So in that sense, your current research is interesting because it looks at a counter-trend, basically, where local civil society organizations are working um, with global groups, with transnational groups, in order to improve the reputation, perhaps, of the sector by enhancing values that are usually mentioned in the context of good governance, good, good global governance, you know, things like transparency, like accountability, etc. It would seem, if we look back at the broader political context, the previous president, Susilo Bambang Yudhoyono, he was very keen on enhancing Indonesia's image as a good global citizen. Yet at the same time, the trend towards this resource nationalism that we see also started during his presidency. Yes. Um, so if we compare these two sort of contradictory trends, would it be fair to say that Yudhoyono, on the one hand, was interested in these discourses about accountability and transparency at a global level because he might have seen this as fitting his um, international agenda. Yet locally, the domestic constituency largely has other interests and therefore it would probably be quite difficult for these networks to actually gain traction in Indonesia. So how did it start? What were the, the initial yeah, the initial problems faced by these networks when they tried their first projects on improving accountability. As you mentioned earlier, in the initial stage of these activities, they have to face the challenge from the, especially at the national level, especially because, as you mentioned earlier, um, used to be it's a very secretive kind of process. You know, nobody knows about the contracts uh, between the Indonesian government and especially with the big mining companies, for example, or the oil and gas. And usually the people just being very passive actors in this kind of the whole process. But then I guess um, there has been also some efforts coming from both the national government level and the CSO activists that would like to sort of kind of demand more transparency towards the government that at the same time the Yudoyono's administration was also committing to be the EITI compliant country. Also some companies that they also have the quote-unquote obligations despite the fact that whether the Indonesian government demand them to be more transparent or accountable, more or less their headquarters in their home countries require them to do so. So we, we see here the different kind of stakeholders coming out from the national government, big mining companies especially, and also the CSOs activists, quote-unquote, for the first time they can meet together uh, they have similar goals to have more transparent and accountable process, especially in the extractive industry. And for me, that is uh, a sign that uh, we still have hope for, you know, I don't know, the better process in, 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 in the country. So there's three main groups involved in this process. The there are the government actors, there are the civil society groups, and there are the mining companies. What exactly do they 
do when they come together? How, how are the civil society organizations who are probably the ones who are pushing this process, how are they trying to seek compliance or acceptance of their norms from government and industry actors? Because normally I think the literature usually argues that global norms are very, very rarely just simply adopted at the local level. Usually there can be either resistance or at least there's a process of adaptation into local contexts in order to make it work. So can you elaborate on that a bit? Using Acharya's terms, what happened in Indonesia is the norms localization where the global norms introduced by the transnational actors then are able to be accepted by the norm takers in this regard the local actors that also have the interest to adopt that norms because they see adopting these global norms are increasing their legitimacy and authority in the eyes of the people to be a bit more specific then Transparency and accountability is believed to enhance the reputation of both government and transnational companies investing in Indonesia in the eyes of the public, which in turn, in a democratic process, would help politicians perhaps to get re-elected. Exactly. But there would also be, nevertheless, be yes. drawbacks for those actors, which is why they are seeking to adjust or modify these values. So what are some of the drawbacks and some of the resistance faced by these global civil society groups when they negotiate, when they lobby for these norms? What are the entrenched interests of the industry and government to resist greater I think the reason is because of less resistance is because of the they're introducing a very specific global norms transparency and accountability are more acceptable than if the global norms that they were trying to introduce is for for example related to how then the, the Indonesian government respect the human rights so because w what requires from the diffuse of these norms are the government is more transparent the the how much money they receive from the company and then the company also has to report how much money they give to the government and how then the government use the money, which is, in my opinion, is a very specific era, or scope, it's a very specific kind of uh, requirement, which is quite doable for the norm takers at, uh, at the local level to accept it. But then if the global norms that were introduced is more than that, probably it will be much more, you know, resistance because the government has to alter like the existing beliefs and the existing norms that probably also uh, will have a greater aspects for their own political interests. Yeah. The problem, I guess, in a case like Indonesia is that the interests of government and business often intersect quite closely. And I think much of this um, idea behind this diffusion or the spreading of global ideas is that they are quite separate and that government will benefit from the spreading of norms as it is quite separate from the business sector. But where they are quite closely tied, the benefits for both government and business in resisting may be bigger than actually adopting the norms. 
So maybe we can look at a case study to illuminate how it can work in practice. There is, I believe, a particular district in Indonesia that has been quite prominent in promoting these values and it has been integrated in various global networks. And you've been doing research there. Which district is it and what have they been doing to become sort of the poster child of this initiative? One of the districts in East Java, uh, which is called Bojonegoro. Why this district is quite interesting to be a social kind of laboratory is because of the Bojonegoro compared to any other regions that reach of nature resources are quite recent to rediscover that that region has also oil and gas. It used to be old oil and gas region, but then it stopped. Then and in 2001, ExxonMobil found out that that region is still capable to produce even more than they expected. So when the rediscovery was in 2001, and then they started to operate in 2005, the region has been the kind of the spotlight because with the new finding of this kind of rich nature resources, the local government is trying to learn from the experience of the other regions in Indonesia, which were also rich of nature resources. But what we have seen in those other regions are conflicts and also that the people couldn't get the benefit. So I think in 2008, when this head of the district was elected, for his first term, then he was supported and assisted by the transnational advocacy networks that I mentioned earlier to establish the better governance for the extractive industry in that region. What is interesting from this region is the head of the district introduced regulations that aiming to provide the people of Bojonegoro with more benefit, uh, especially in regard to the employment. So they have all the low-skill positions for the companies that related to the extractive industries have the obligations to hire local people. Another kind of initiative uh, introduced by this head of the district is also the requirement for any kind of the extractive industries operating in his region has to have a collaboration with the local state-owned companies. Uh, we have like state-owned companies at the national level like Pertamina and all those things but then at the regional level we rarely have that kind of companies that local companies that owned by the local government. And he also can get the support from the people because he also has another regulations that each village which is affected by the operation of the extractive industry got special kind of financial support. So he, in my opinion, wants to ensure that the affected villages are directly gained from the profit that the, the region earned from this kind of industry. He also introduced weekly kind of meeting directly with the people after the Friday praying. So he opened his office for people to come to his uh, office just to communicate and meet him. 
So it sounds a bit as if it's a win-win situation. The local government seems to uh, be popular because of its initiatives. The people seem to benefit from it. And the way you describe it, Exxon Mobile as the uh, foreign investor also has no problems with local conflict about the resource extraction. Are there any other examples that have followed the lead of Bojonegoro? Can it be a case study um, that can be emulated in other parts or do you think it's, it's a bit exceptional? It's now on the global map for global transparency. Bojonegoro has been included in various international programs so they, they're getting new money coming in to further develop these programs. And yet we don't hear much from other regions trying yeah. to do the same thing. So to what extent do you think is Bojonegoro yeah, an exception to the rule or can it be a trailblazer for other regions to follow? There is another region uh, which is also in East Java. It's in Banyuwangi. Also trying to follow the examples that has been shown by the local government in Bojonegoro. Again, because of the situation in that region in Banyuwangi is also recently discovered. They say that it's also big gold reserve in Banyuwangi. So the, the local government, uh, the head of the district was also having like, you know, uh, some of the initiatives in order to deal with the management issues regarding the extractive industries. Back to your questions, whether this is exceptional or not, for the regions that already had the nature resources prior to 2000 or, or during the probably Suharto era that already been rich because of the nature resources, I think it was more difficult for them to reform the existing practice. Uh, while for the regions that just recently discover that they have these natural resources are much more open for any kind of the influence, especially coming from the civil society. So that's why I don't know if I'm too optimistic in a way that the, what happened in Bujanagoro is actually will have a great chance to be replicated in other places. But for the regions that only recently having, you know, finding out that they actually have the natural resources. But for the other regions that have been widely known, regarded as the rich natural resources, it will be much more difficult for them because some of them are already in the post-industrial process or in the post of operation. So the damage has been done, I should say that. But then for those who just newly entering the era of the operation of this extractive industry, I believe they have more chance also for the civil society to have more closer sort of monitoring to the process. And the overarching narrative at the moment in Indonesian politics is also not particularly conducive. I think it's an additional obstacle Plus, if we consider the existing clientelistic networks, yeah. business networks that may resist this. So the obstacles are still clearly there. But I like that you're being optimistic about it. Yes, I have um, to be that way. <laughs> and I like finishing perhaps on this um, optimistic note. And so I'd like to thank you for being on the program today. Thank you too, Dirk. Yeah. Thank you very much for your insights. That was Dr. Poppy Sulistiani Winanti from Jakarta's Gajamara University speaking with Dirk Tomza on the Talking Indonesia podcast. Please join us again on 13th of April for the next episode of this podcast.
You can find the entire archive of the Talking Indonesia podcast at the Indonesia at Melbourne blog, or you can subscribe via iTunes or your favorite podcasting app.